So we've been discussing the uh, different spheroids, so the different divine attributes as they are represented in each of us, what we call the soul powers or, or capacities. Being that this Sphira uh, Sa'ima, the time, the 49 days between uh, the Exodus, which is marked on Pesach, and the receiving of the Torah, which is marked on Shavuos, is a time of self-refinement um, known as Sphira Sa'ima. Counting of the Aimer, but Sphira is not just counting, Sphira is also Malashin Sapir, like a sapphire, making it shine, making it uh, refined. So this week is the week of Hoid. Hoid literally translated means splendor. Like Hoid Vahadar. Splendor and beauty. But Hoid has um, another meaning as well, which is related etymologically to the word Hoidah. Haidah means admission, as well as gratitude. It means both admission and gratitude, which is something, with, with, with God's help, we'll talk about that, the relationship between admission and gratitude, because they're not necessarily synonymous, at least not in English. But in the Holy Tongue, functionally they are, and that's that's rather instructive that they are. But we'll... Like I said, God willing, get to that, get back to that point. Um, and if I don't, please remind me. And we're going to talk about the fact that Hoid is Hoida, and Hoida is both admission and gratitude. But uh, what I want to start off with is to point out that this week there's a Yomtev known as Lagbaimer. Lag Ba'imer literally means the 33rd day of the Eimer counting. And Lag Ba'imer is always in the week of Hoyt, right? Because Lag Ba'imer is set by its uh, position in Sviras Ha'imer, the 33rd day, like we mentioned. And uh, the 33rd day is always in the fifth week, which is the week of Hoyt. So, what's the connection between Lag Ba'imer and Hoyt? There's a general concept that every, everything in Judaism can be found in Torah. Meaning, when we say Torah, we, we, we can mean different things by Torah. Sometimes we mean all Jewish knowledge. But um, Torah here meaning specifically the written Torah. And not just the written Torah, the, the five books. Chumash, the five books of Moses. That everything in in, in Yiddishkeit can be traced back somewhere to uh, to the five books of Moses. So there's a, a verse in uh, Parshas Vayetze where Yankiv Avinu, our forefather Jacob, has left the house of his father-in-law Lavan and. Uh, in fact, he, he runs away. He escapes. And Lovan chases him and asks him why he ran away. And uh, they get into a whole discussion and it ends with a peace treaty. 
and they make a decision, you go your way, I'll go my way, and we're not going to bother each other anymore, and uh, they make a mound of stones to mark the boundary between their territories. You don't come to this side, I don't come to that side, we don't bother each other. So, um, the verse says, V'yemer Lovin, Lovin said, Hagal Hazeh, this mound, mound of stones, pile of stones, Aid it should be a witness between me and you, or a testimony between me and you, Hayem today. Alkain, therefore, Kodeshmoi Galaid. That's why they called the name of this place Galaid, the witness stone, or the testimony stone. Not stone, pile of stones. The uh, testimonial pile of stones. So this word Gal, pile, is Lamed Gimel, Lag. This is the hint to Lag Baimer in the Torah. Why, why is the Gal the hint to the Lag? Well, one reason, one reason, and this is not necessarily connected to Hoid, but it's an important concept to be aware of, is that we know originally Kabbalah, what we refer to as Kabbalah, but uh, probably more accurately should be described as Pinimius HaTayra, the inner dimension of Tayra. <coughs> Meaning, it's not a separate discipline or field of study. It is one and the same as the Tayra that everyone learns. It's just the inner dimension. When you go deep, when you delve into the meanings of the words of Tayra, you find the inner dimension. Sometimes we call it the mystical dimension. Sometimes we call it soid, which means the secrets. Um, but but this is precisely the point. Um, we I, what I was about to say is we know that generally, historically, not always was this information so well known. So the name soid, secret, sort of indicates that. Um, in fact, sometimes Kabbalah is, is compared to wine, metaphorically. We refer, we refer to Torah as water. Sometimes we refer to Kabbalah as wine. Because uh, there's, there's a saying, Nichnes yayin, soid. When wine goes in, the secrets come out. Which means that the intoxicating effect of the wine lowers inhibition and the secrets come out right you want to get somebody talking give them a, give them a glass of wine but also the, the deeper meaning is <clears throat> that the soid and the yayin yayin is yud yud nun that's 10 10 50 70 total and soid is samach vav dalid so that's 60 and 6 and 4 it's another 70 so yayin and soid have the same gematria, 70 and 70, meaning to say that the soid was always in the yayin. The secret was in the wine, which is actually the process of making wine. You take the grapes and you crush them and 
through the process of fermentation, it reveals its own latent power to become wine. So it's not that the, the grapes become something else, the grapes reveal a latent potential that was within them. <clears throat> and that's the same idea of the hidden secrets that are like wine, that are perhaps intoxicating in a certain way, like wine. They're not something separate to the Torah, they're contained within the Torah itself, it, it's just latent or in potential, and it needs to be drawn out. Okay. So, the question is then, how do we allow secrets to be made public? Or on what basis are secrets allowed to be made public? And, and the general concept is that it's on a need-to-know basis. A need-to-know basis means that one does not study this information frivolously. You don't do it because it's inspiring, or it's exciting, or it's cool, right? People like to study Kabbalah because it's far out, right? No. That's like getting drunk for fun. I want to drink some wine. Why? Because it feels good. No, that's, that's not... It's that's not okay. Oh, I want to learn a little Kabbalah because it's trippy, you know? It's a head trip, man. Uh, I like it. <laughs> no, no, that's not what it's for. This is the inner secrets of the Torah. This is serious business. And when we say that there were all these restrictions historically against learning it, it's not a joke. There's a reason why there were restrictions. And yet, there's also a reason why today we're taking secrets of the Torah that were previously hidden and guarded, and we're disseminating them openly. We're taking Kabbalistic secrets and putting them out on the internet where anybody can type in a, an address on a URL and boom, right in, the, in their living room, they're sitting there and they're, they're learning secrets that people didn't know about uh, a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago, or even not necessarily with that type of access ten years ago. So how is this permissible? Again, the whole basis is need to know. This is the famous metaphor of the Alter Rebbe that when the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, the author of the Tanya, he was one of the students of the Mezritcha Magid. The Magid was the disciple and successor of the Baal Shem Tov, and the Alter Rebbe was the disciple of the Magid. So, we're talking about the third generation of Chassidus. There's a story that's told that once the Alter Rebbe was walking through the streets of Mezrich, the town where the Magid taught, and one of the older students, who had been a student of the Baal Shem Tov, Reb Pinchas, Reb Pinchas Koretzer, he noticed how written notes of Chassidus, teachings of the Magid that had been written down by a student, these, pa these papers were, were fluttering in the wind and like sort of flying in, in, into the street, like, like so much trash, God forbid. And Pinchas was horrified. So he said to the Alter Rebbe, he says, you see with you, your, your, you know, your generation, the, young, the younger disciples, what you've done, 
this would never happen in my day and age. In my day and age, meaning that Pinchas had been a student by the Baal Shem Tov. We knew that these teachings were oral teachings only. Now you guys, you write them down on papers, and you see what happens. It comes to a disgrace. These papers are flying down the street. So the Alter Rebbe said, I'll tell you a story. There was once a king, and that king had a beloved son, an only son. And the son became sick, and nobody could find the cure for his illness. Until finally, there was one wise man who presented himself, and he said, I know the cure. There's a particular stone, a gemstone, which has um, medicinal properties. And what you do is you crush it up, you pulverize it, and you add the dust to, a wa- to water. You make a solution from the gemstone and the, and the water. And if he drinks that, that will cure him. <clears throat> so the king says, fine, go ahead, let's do it. Where's the gemstone? Money's no object. So the, the wise man said, King, you don't have to buy it. You have it already. He says, let's get it out here. He says, you don't have to get it out. It's right there. It's the centerpiece of your crown. So now the king is presented with a dilemma. The centerpiece of his crown, which beautifies the crown, and which symbolizes the greatness of his kingdom, is going to be crushed. And now... To exacerbate the conflict, the king, sa- the, the, the wise man says, I want you to know that your son is in such a poor state already, I'm not even guaranteeing it'll work. You may pulverize this gemstone for nothing, because he may not even be able to drink the, the medicine we make. The king says, how much does he need? The wise man says, even a drop. So... The king says, even if we crush the stone and we pour it down his throat and most of it trickles down his cheeks and lands up on the floor, but one drop will get into his throat and save him, then it's worth it. What point is there to have my my kingdom if I don't have my son? So they went and they pulverized the gem and they gave it to the son. And indeed, most of the medicine ran down his cheeks and ran onto the floor. But one drop got into his mouth, and he swallowed it, and he was revived. So the Altareb explained that the, the, the crown jewel is Panimia Satoida, the secrets of Kabbalah. The crown itself is Taito. The king, the king himself is Hashem. The crown jewel, meaning the centerpiece of the crown, the, the main jewel, are the secrets of the Torah. Crushing it up means bringing it down in a way that people can actually learn it and understand it. Making it into the medicine is disseminating it. And what you see here, these pages of Hasidus that are fluttering in the wind, that's the, the medicine that runs down the cheeks and ends up on the floor. But if one drop of this information got into a Jewish person's mind and clicked, that can turn everything around. It can literally save his spiritual life. So that metaphor from the Alter Rebbe was enough <clears throat> to, uh, to satisfy Reb Pinchas. Later on, the Alter Rebbe came to his Rebbe, came to uh, the Magid, and the Magid told him that I had just been asleep. 
it was in the middle of the day, but he, he fell asleep, the Magad. And he said, in my, during my uh, sleep, I had a dream. And I dreamt I was being judged by the heavenly court and charged with uh, unlawfully disseminating the secrets of the Torah in a way that they came to disgrace. And I had no answer. He said, but then Zalman Yul, he used to call Rebbe Shner Zalman, the Alter Rebbe, used to call, the, the Magad used to call him Zalmanu. So he said, Zalmanu, you showed up and you gave an argument that was acceptable to the heavenly court. And if it weren't for your argument, they would not have allowed me to wake up from my sleep just now. They were going to keep my soul in heaven and not allow me to return. So I owe my life to you. At any rate, <clears throat> what is the gal? What is the pile of stones? The pile of stones is the demarcation how far are we allowed to dip into the secret stash and pull out information that heretofore was not available to the world. In each generation, based on the needs of that generation, that gal, that demarcation, was moved. One of the most significant um, movements of that uh, demarcation was in the times of Reb Shimon ben Yechai, the Rashbi. The Rashbi was the one who actually taught Kabbalah, he taught the, the, the teachings of the Zohar to his students. Granted, he didn't teach it publicly because it wasn't ready yet for that level of dissemination, but he taught it to his students. Among the students themselves, there was a more elite group. You had the Idra Rabba and the Idra Zuta, the big circle and the small circle. Sometimes they would sit in a big circle, that was the, 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 the bigger class. And then they would sit in the small circle, that was the smaller class. <coughs> Reb Abba, the scribe, would record everything. And that constituted one of the great uh, movements of the Gal, of the mount where secrets of the Torah that were, till that point, unavailable became more available. And then subsequently, throughout the generations, there were other shifts. Um, the Baal Shem Tov, obviously being one of those major shifts. But uh, prior to the Baal Shem Tov, the Arizal also was one of, one, one of the major shifts. Lurianic Kabbalah, from the city of Svas in the 1500s, that was a major new milestone <coughs> in the um, dissemination of the secrets of the Torah. In fact, it was pointed out that um, these figures all have the same initials, and those initials are hinted to in the Torah where it says that Bnei Yisrael, the Jewish people, left Egypt biyad Rama with a high hand. What does that mean? So the, the Targum says Beresh uh, Gli with their head held high. I mean, they left proudly. So Beresh, base Resh Yod Shin, is Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai. It's also Rabbi Yitzchok ben Shleime. Yitzchok ben Shleime is. Um, Isaac Luria, Yitzchok Ben Shleim is uh, Yitzchok Luria. 
Rabbi Yisrael ben Sara is the Baal Shem Tov. And the Rebbe once mentioned that if Abrengen, that somebody said to him that it could also be Rabbi Yisrael Yitzchok ben Shalom Devber or Rabbi Yisrael Yitzchok ben Stern Asara, meaning the Rebbe's Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe. And the Rebbe said, I never saw that in a, you know, in a source, but when somebody suggested it and it sounded so right, uh, you know, it's worth repeating. So now we saw it in a source because the Rebbe said it. <laughs> the point is <clears throat> that the secrets of the Torah are not for fun, they're not for amusement, they're not a toy, it's serious business. And those who are concerned about letting too much of the secrets of the Torah into the public domain, it's a valid concern. You can't, you can't dismiss that concern. And those who say, those who raise the question, you know, are, is, is it really safe? Is it really, you know, maybe this isn't meant for, for people who don't have a lot of experience. Maybe first you have to learn the whole shas. After you've been through, the, through, through all of uh, the Talmud, then you'll, then you'll start to learn a little bit of Kabbalah. It's a valid concern. It's a legitimate question. But the answer is, it's on a need-to-know basis. And in each generation, <coughs> there are different leaders or shepherds of the Jewish people who have the responsibility to make that judgment call about how much of the secrets need to be disseminated. Is this a shas Yeah, very much so. Right, this is, a, this is emergency medicine. I mean, the metaphor of the Alter Rebbe was a life-saving measure. That's, the, that's intrinsic to the metaphor is the life-saving measure, meaning it's, it's, it's life and death. It's not a joke. In, in other words, what's the implication? This information isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. I don't know if I should say this. <laughs> now you want to hear it. It's not the type of a statement that you're used to hearing from Chabad. Because the Rebbe's style was very, very kind and gentle. Which, which also is appropriate to the generation. Because nowadays, people can't take any criticism. It's like, don't do it. Don't, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. <clears throat> people need love. That's it. That's all they respond to. But the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, he made a comment. I mean, it's in a, it's in a long discourse that's speaking, it's called Kol bin Nochemes Beis David. All those who go out in the wars of King David. And he was speaking to his students, the Tmimim, who were basically, he was training them to be able to be the resistance against Stalinist oppression <clears throat> in the future. I mean, he was, he was still in the times of the early, you know, right after the revolution. But you see, he was planting the seeds because really... Most of Jewry folded under that pressure when the oppression got really, really unbearable. And he was already... The, well, there were two things. <clears throat> there was also the Enlightenment that Rebbe Rishab was addressing. But that's in Russia, the Enlightenment and, and, and communism sort of there's a go hand in hand. But he was speaking about modernization, about, uh, about assimilation. And uh, so at any rate, he's priming these young men to be the soldiers who are going to be able to preserve authentic Judaism. 
And there's a comment in there. He said, there's two kinds of people who learn Chassidus. People who learn Chassidus because they want to, and people who learn Chassidus because they need to. The people who learn Chassidus because they want to, Chobzei Feint. I hate them. Told you, that's not the kind of thing that we would put on Chabad.org today, but he was expressing a certain disdain for the idea of learning Chassidus as a luxury. Like, you think this is fun and games? This is life and death. It's, you know... What about the ones who need to? Oh, <coughs> ones who need to. How do you, you mean, what, what would the Rebbe Shab say he feels about them? By implication, he loves them. I'm sure the Rebbe Shab loves everybody. But the point is, there's a certain inappropriateness, I, would, I guess I would say, um, to seeking out these secrets because uh, because you want to be amused or entertained or or even 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 inspired it's not about your inspiration it's not about enhancing your life or even enhancing your spirituality it's about a recognition that I am spiritually not because I'm a bad person but because the time in history to which I was born I'm in a precarious situation here and desperate times call for desperate measures. And I, to the contrary, it's not that learning chassidus is a luxury. It's the opposite. I don't have the luxury not to learn chassidus. I don't have the luxury to just learn basic Judaism. Learn Chumash and learn Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch. No, I need to know the secrets. Because without it, I'm going to languish and I'm going to not going to be good. So, the idea here is that this information is disseminated on a need-to-know basis. Lag Boimer is a celebration of the Gal. Lag Boimer is a celebration of Pneumia Satayra, the Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon being the first one who really made a major shift in starting to get the word out. Kabbalah always existed. It goes back to Tayrus Meisha. It's hidden within the Torah itself. Why would they need to? You mean? Meaning, is that just wanting to You don't mean what? You don't mean why would they need to learn? Meaning, what will happen if they don't? You're saying, what is it? What does it uniquely do for you that will prevent the bad thing from happening? That's what you mean. Okay. Let's simplify it like this. There's, in Yiddish we say, the vos and the far vos. There's the what and there's the why. Nigle, which means the revealed aspects of Torah, we call it revealed because it was always revealed, is the what. You, you tell me what happened. What are we commemorating? What is the way of commemorating it? What is the observance I have to follow? What is the ritual? What are the parameters, the stipulations for proper observance? The what? 
Then there's the why. Why am I doing this? Why did that thing happen? Why did it happen that way? Why did it happen then? Why is it important to me? Why is the way that I'm commemorating that actually doing something? What are the mechanics of it, in other words? How is this effective? You know, opening, taking the face off the watch and seeing the gears. <clears throat> so what we're saying is that perhaps, not perhaps, evidently, there was a time when you could just tell people the what, and you didn't have to explain the why, and uh, that was okay, that was enough. And one of the reasons for that is that people were more intuitively spiritual. So you didn't have to spell out the why, even if they couldn't articulate the why, in their kishkas, they kind of felt the why. It kind of made sense, right? Even if simple Jews, they couldn't necessarily explain, obviously they couldn't explain the Kabbalistic mechanics of what's happening behind every mitzvah. But maybe on a gut level, on an intuitive level, they felt it, or they were in tune with it, so to speak. Today we don't have that. I know last week we were speaking about that a lot, <clears throat> about Eurydice Hadoides, the descents of the generation. And that even the sensitive people from our time don't come to the toenails of the regular people from the times of the Beis HaMikdush. There was a question after class, how come those people served idols and we don't? So I said that itself is the best proof. You know why, you know why we don't serve idols? Not because we're so spiritual. Because we we're because we're spiritually numb, <laughs> because we're not attracted to spirituality in general. If you knew the power of the koyachatuma of the impure forces, and you understood and felt what they accomplish, yeah, I think you might be interested in a little black magic, a little voodoo. But we don't feel any of that stuff. So even the most spiritual of us. We're, uh, it's all relative. It's all relative. We're, we're, we're fumbling in the dark. So we have to have a substitute to augment what we are lacking intuitively. In other words, if you're not getting the right vitamins from nutrition, you've got to take supplements. So maybe once upon a time, they didn't have to have the secrets of the Torah spelled out to them and taught to them. And somehow it was like it was just in the air that they breathed. But today we have to take supplements. Yeah? I'm wondering, is the simple Jew more prone in those days to have that intuitiveness? The simpler as opposed to the more scholarly? <sighs> That's a good question. The question was, was it the more simple you were, the more intuitive it was? And the answer is probably yes. Yes. Because in general, the less the intellect is involved, the more the intuition is involved. But how is that pertinent to us? It's pertinent in as much as today, even those of us who are simple are not so simple. Right? What's the opposite of a simple Jew? A complicated Jew. What's a complicated Jew? Right? Complicated Jew. I, 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 I'll tell you, you know how many times 
That I've, you know, especially when I was like a bacher in, in yeshiva, you go out on the, on the street corner Friday afternoon with the tefillin. I used to have a spot in Manhattan near Columbia University. I used to stand out there, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? Excuse me, ma'am, are you Jewish? I had the tefillin, I had the Shabbos candles. And I can't tell you how many times I would stop someone, excuse me, are you Jewish? And the response would be like, well, you know... <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> like, what's complicated? <laughs> it reminds me of the, the the joke about the guy on El Al. The, the the flight attendant comes over. She says, "It's dinner time. Would would you like to eat?" He said, "What are my choices?" She said, two choices: you eat or you don't." <laughs> right? Are you Jewish? Eh, it's complicated. What what's complicated? You are or you're not? But it's complicated, right? Well, I don't know. Culturally, I like bagels. I don't know. Like. A, it's very simple. It is or it isn't. Today, we're complicated. Everything's complicated. Everything has nuances. We call it sophistication, but it's neurosis. Uh, everything's gray. There's no black and white. right? And the simplicity, the simplicity is lost. So we need the simplicity restored. We need the clarity restored. What's the greatness of the simple Jew? Not that they're simple, that they have clarity. So a complicated Jew, in order to achieve clarity, what are you supposed to do? Make yourself simple? Well, you should knock yourself in the head with a brick until you lose some IQ points and you become simple? How are you supposed to become simple? You're not going to become simple. But you can achieve the clarity that the simple Jew has. Not through knocking off IQ points, but by using your brain. So you have a brain that keeps you up at night thinking anyway. You're anyways an overthinker. Okay. <laughs> You're a complicated Jew. Everything, right? Overanalysis. All right, so we're going to give you some stuff to overanalyze. We're going to give you some stuff to keep your brain busy in a healthy way. Not just for the distraction of it, but to the, no. To keep your brain busy in a healthy way, we're going to give you some food for thought that will actually take you to... A positive conclusion where you're going to get the clarity that the simple Jew had without all the mental exercises. Is it? Yeah. So my question is, um, if you take a Yaakov Avinu or you take the Arizal, um, they had both. Isn't that the goal? That you should still be learning Torah and and at the same time you should be in Ishtam. You should still be clear and... Okay. This is very good. This is where I'm heading. This is, no, I, I take it as a compliment. It means that I'm leading you on the right path because you're two steps ahead. But let's jump to your conclusion. You, you hear the comment? <sighs> learning chesedes, learning panimia satayda, kabbalah. Okay, that's all great. But at the end of the day, what, what's with simplicity? Like Yankee Vivino is a prime example. He was called an ishtam. Ishtam means... Straight shooter. He wasn't complicated. Asaph was complicated. Yedei outside, he knew how to hunt, means he was a, you know, a wheeler dealer. Knew how to, you know, machadre. Yanke Vivino, straightforward. So where's the, where's the artless simplicity? Ah, okay. So seeing as we've got 15 minutes left, and this Everything I said till now was just the um, preamble. <laughs> Remember, I said earlier that Lag Boimer is related to Hoid, but first I'm going to tell you how Lag is related, how we find it in Torah, 
and it's not necessarily related to Hyde, but then I want to get to how it is related to Hyde. Remember me saying that? I remember saying it. Okay, all of this is how it's not necessarily related to Hyde. But in the remaining 14 minutes, we'll talk about, because that's exactly where we're going. What is Hoyt? And someone has to remind me also that I should explain how gratitude and acknowledgement are one and the same. Yeah. Hoyt is on the left axis, just as Gvura is the opposite of Chesed, Hoyt is the opposite of Netzach. Now we spoke about how Netzach is from that word Nitzachin. Remember last week? Victory. And Midas HaNetzach is tenacity or stubbornness, pushing it through, never giving up. Hoid is the counterbalance to Netzach. Hoid is the art of letting go. You might even call it poise. Or self-control. I'm, I'm excited to tell you something, something deep, but I notice that your eyes are glazing over and I'm just not hitting the spot. So I have to have hoid, I have to have poise, and I have to dial it back a little. Not as a punishment, not as like, a, well, if you don't get excited about this idea that I'm excited about, then I'm not going to tell it to you. No, to the contrary, because I now see that some tzimtzum, some compression is required, so I'm going to take it back a notch, take it down a notch, and I'm going to compress the idea a little bit. That's hoid. So Netzach is pushing forward, hoid is hanging back. You might also call it acceptance. <coughs> That's why... <coughs> Hoid is related to Hoidah, which means admission. Admission means to make a fair appraisal of reality. So in theory, I have this idea I'm excited about and I want to tell the world. But in practice, (laughs) you don't say it the way that you want to say it. You have to say it. I mean, you can. But you, you should say it the way it's going to be heard. Say it in a way that people can handle it. Don't say something, (laughs) I'm talking to myself right now, don't say something shocking just because its truth excites you. And you want to shock other people into seeing that truth. You're just going to distract them with something that sounds crazy. Take it down a few notches, lead them slowly to the point, and that will be more effective in the end. Okay, that's Hoyt, yeah? And then that's an example of true Gvura, right? That's a, well, Hoyt is related to Gvura. Hoyt and Gvura are on the same axis. They're both on the left side. <clears throat> Gvura is sort of like, before the lesson, I decide how much of the idea I'm going to share. Hoyt is closer to the finish line. It's further down. So Hoyt is during the midst of the lesson, as I see, the reactions are... You know, it's not clicking, so Hoyt is in the... Hoyt is called the millstones. Um, Netzach and Hoyt are called the millstones <clears throat> because they grind the, the wheat into flour. 
<coughs> what that means is um, making something digestible. So chesed gvura is sort of like before the actual transmission, and then netzach and hoid are at the at the time of the transmission itself, attenuating things to make it digestible. Netzach is 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 the gas, and hoid is the brakes. <coughs> So acceptance is very much related to Haid. Haida. is I admit. Now, and I said I'm going to mention how Haida is also gratitude. To be in a state of gratitude. It's interesting. Some people acknowledge that which they are grateful for. And that which they are not grateful for, they reserve the right to be in denial. Or, if they're not in denial, you know, I told you the joke my father told me. My father's a psychologist. He told me, the psychotic thinks 2 plus 2 equals 5. A neurotic knows 2 plus 2 equals 4, and he can't stand it. (laughs) So, I don't like this fact of reality, therefore it doesn't exist. That's 2 plus 2 equals 5. I'm changing reality. Or, I know that I can't change it. 2 plus 2 equals 4. It is, the, it is what it is, but I hate it. So I'm, like, I'm living in God's reality under protest. Because this fact of my life is unacceptable to me. All right? So therefore, if, and then therefore I, I won't acknowledge it. Like, yeah, technically that's, those are the facts of my life. But I don't acknowledge this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. My life was not supposed to be this way. So therefore, unless they're grateful for something, they won't acknowledge it. Judaism is the opposite. Because I acknowledge it, I'm grateful for it. What does that mean? All I have to do is acknowledge that something is reality, and automatically I can be grateful. I don't have to wait for something to be pleasing to me, something that evokes gratitude, like, oh, that hits the spot, that was perfect, that's what I wanted, that's just what the doctor ordered, right? No, to the contrary. I start with, oh, that's real. (coughs) Painful, pleasurable, what I hoped for, what I hoped would never happen, either way. My greatest dreams, my biggest nightmares, either way. But I acknowledge this thing, this is real. How do I know it's real? Because Hashem's creating the world. That's, that's where it comes from. And since this is what Hashem is giving me at this moment, this must be my present. Literally, my present. Every moment is a gift. That's why they call it a present. Your present. Not your past, not your future. Your present. So the acknowledgement of its reality, that Hashem is creating it at this moment, leads to the gratitude. The this must be for me. And must be ultimately for my good. That is hoid. Hoid is acceptance. Hashem sends you a delivery. You see your name on it. But you peek inside the package and you see it's not what you wanted for. It's not what you were davening for. It was, it was what you were davening that shouldn't happen. And now it's delivered. And you don't want to sign for it. Hoid is. You're going to sign for it. You're going to accept delivery. Yeah. Can the rabbi explain um, the relationship between Netzach and Hod? So, I have five more minutes to get to the previous. I have too many uh, 
too many orders of business. We have to. This is this is a, this is an exercise of, exercise of gvura on my part to say, let's hold off on that, and let's finish this thought here, because we still didn't explain how hoid is related to the gal, the mound, the demarcation, and the dissemination of the inner secrets of the Torah in every generation. But it's related to your previous comment of the simplicity being necessary, even as you are exercising your uh, intellectual growth through the study of Kabbalah and Chassidus. So this is, this is the idea. It's interesting that the demarcation, the, the line that distinguishes between what's necessary and unnecessary is made of stones. What are stones? Stones are lifeless. Not just, they're not animals, they're not even vegetables. A plant can't get up and run around, but it it grows. It has life. A stone is lifeless, it's inert. In Avedas Hashem, in our service of, of God Almighty, the stone... There's, every one of us is a, is, a, is a world in microcosm. So everything that exists in the universe exists within us. And, and conversely, everything in us is reflected in the universe. So within us, there's the human, there's the animal, there's the vegetative, there's the inert. Within us. Um, Seichel, our intellect, is like the animal within us. Why? How, how so? Usually we think of the animalistic drives as being more emotional. In this case, though, um, so there would be four levels. Human, animal, vegetative, and inert. So the human part of us is the spiritual component, the abstract, that which searches for something beyond. The animalistic is the rational part, or the intellectual part, meaning it's capable of thinking abstractly, but not necessarily spiritually. One notch down from the human, uniquely human capacity. So the animal is intellect. Why is the animal intellect? If you're a good lawyer, you could argue either side of the case. Intellect is not loyal. Because if you're a good debater, for instance, you should be able to convincingly present all of your opponent's arguments. If you're a real debater and not just someone who's good at you know, emotional manipulation. But if you really know the facts, you know the other side of the fact as well. So intellect moves around. Like an animal that's rootless, it jumps around. It's not stuck in one spot. That's what differentiates the animal from the the plant, is the animal has movement. The plant is like emotions. Why is the plant like emotions? Because the plant can't move around. Emotions don't move around. Love is love. Fear is fear. Ava and Yira remain what they are. The only fluctuation is in growth. So the tree gets bigger, but it doesn't move from its spot. So I can expand the love and make it a greater love, but the love doesn't turn into fear. And the fear doesn't turn into love. The inanimate or the inert within us is action. 
and pure inert. There are levels within levels. There's the just like in the Sefirah Salimer, we have the Chesed Shebechesed and the Gvodah Shebechesed, the subsets, right? <clears throat> so even within these four categories, you have like the human of human, the animal of human, the vegetable of human, the, in, the inanimate of human. So within the inert or inanimate, the inanimate of inanimate, the pure the pure, inanimate aspect of the person is Kabbalah's oil Malchus Shemayim, acceptance of the yoke of heaven. Which means, it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what I feel, all that matters is to get the job done. Commitment, that's it. So, here's how this whole concept relates to height that because we are being trusted with powerful information, with information that was deemed so dangerous in the wrong hands that it had to be kept secret, but we're being trusted with it because we need it. So we therefore need at the same time to be very, very committed to action, without second-guessing, without worrying about our thoughts and our feelings. Obedience. So the stone marker, the marker that shows that more secrets of the Torah can be revealed, the marker itself is made out of stone to represent what? The stone is the, the consummate or the quintessential inanimate object. That as much as you're being inundated with all these mind-blowing secrets, at the same time, there has to be that discipline, that obedience, which is hoid. Hoid is being able to accept, being graceful, being gracious in acceptance, turning off your judgment, turning off your second guessing, and just accepting, showing up, being ready to report for duty, that attitude. So as much as the secrets are revealed and we get more and more of this this mind expansion going on, simultaneously we have to become more and more like stones at the same time. Is 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 it a contradiction? Yeah, let it be a contradiction. This is what's demanded from a Jew. At the same time as where our minds are expanding with this being inundated with all these secrets of the Torah, there has to be this steadfast, stone like commitment of this is what must be done and therefore this is what I'm doing. And when we couple those together, the mind expanding information with the blind obedience, this is exactly how we bring Mashiach. Which, what is bringing Mashiach? It's the world being flooded with holy information and it's a world where everything, even stones, reflect God's will. From the highest to the lowest. Anyways, there's a lot more to be said on this topic, but uh, this is what time permits.